What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Brian Bradley. Brian is an attorney, and today he's bringing us a detailed, layered asset protection strategy that is tested and proven, and we get into how it's been tested in this episode. It's an asset protection strategy that folks have used to protect their money in the event of lawsuits and and bad situations happening to them. This one's more complicated than probably any other asset protection strategy you've heard. Okay, so be ready for it. Get out, if you're, if you're sitting still, you're not driving, get out a pad of paper, get ready to write these things down because you're gonna have questions. You're gonna wanna go back and listen to it to make sure you really understand what's going on because this is, this is not just go start an LLC or hire a lawyer to start you an LLC. No, no, no. This is better than that. This is more protection than that. And it's also a little bit more complicated, at least to understand if you're not a legal expert. I'm not a legal expert. And going back and re-listening to this has certainly benefited me. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. I'm really happy to have you with us today. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and we split the return. Love talking about real estate investing. I believe it is the best long-term strategy for busy professionals to passively grow their wealth in their spare time without buying a second job or getting themselves tenants, toilets, and termites to work on. There are better ways to do it. And that's what we are here to learn and to discuss. Thank you for tuning in. Here we go with Brian Bradley. Brian, thank you for joining us today. I uh, know. Thanks, Taylor, for having me on and putting this uh, podcast and this live stream together. And it's going to be a big topic, but I think necessary for all your listeners. And we're going to go over some pretty cool key concepts of asset protection and for everyone trying to uh, develop that passive wealth and you know how to protect it and keep it. It's not a matter of what you got, but at the end of the day, what you keep. And that's what we do. I love it. Great summary. Um, for those out there, before we get into the topic, for those out there who don't know about you, can you tell us about who you are, your qualifications, and what you do? Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's always like, oh, you want me to tell you who I am because then it feels like you're braggadocious, but I, yeah, no problem. Um, you know, so I'm an asset protection attorney, and um, so, you know, my qualifications are I've been – you know, selected to Super Lawyers Rising Star list, uh, Lawyers of Distinction list three years in a row, nominated to the top 100 high stake litigators list and the top 500 law firm award. Uh, I write for the Oregon State Bar Law Journal on high-end asset protection. I also work as a chief knowledge officer for other law firms and businesses and helping them maximize their value and technology and integrating, you know, new um, legal platforms into there. And I'm an investor, you know, so I, I, I'm passionate about what I do on asset protection because I like investing myself. And the last thing I want to do is see my assets go bye-bye. Um, and so I got into asset protection from the litigation side of the law and having clients being sued and their lives just turned completely upside down with not much that they were able to do about it. And I just got disgusted by this and I wanted to help um, clients before they were attacked and before they were in problem. And the sad thing is that the legal system's broken and it's not about justice any longer. You know, like good old Abe Lincoln when he was, uh, you know, talking about how the legal system is just for justice. And, you know, the American Bar Association now has estimated that there's more than, you know, what, 40 million lawsuits filed every year in the U.S., 
And real estate law and investment and business, yeah, and business law is one of the most heavily uh, litigated areas of law that there is. And so the system has just really become more of a redistribution of wealth from the haves to the have-nots over the last 40 years. Um, and so what we really do is provide peace of mind for clients. Um, that's really what, when you call an asset protection attorney, is you're asking for is, I just want peace of mind. I want to be able to sleep well knowing what I have it has a system in place to protect it if something bad were to happen. While we keep in you know, mind the overall goal is lifestyle preservation and changing the way predators view you. So what my firm specifically does is work with the higher net worth clients um, and higher risk profile uh, professionals like doctors and real estate investors who you know, hit or turn that $1 million net worth mark. And it comes with a little bit higher initial startup costs for what we do, generally around $30,000. Uh, but on the other side, the client profile and their need and exposure and risk and availability is, you know, visibility is just a lot more. And so with that comes, you know, more protection. And, you know, what we, what, uh, what is it, within our network, uh, we protected about $4 billion worth of assets in the systems that we create for clients. So, you know, like we really know what we're doing. Wow. That's awesome. That's great. Fantastic summary. You've got a lot of experience and, you know, let's dive into it. I, I think one of the things or the, probably one of the biggest things that people run into when they first start realizing, uh, unless it's too late, when they first start really realizing I need some asset protection is they don't really know where to start. They don't have a, a guide in front of them or, or principles to work off of. So, you know, do you have uh, principles or anything that people can follow or, or think about as they grow their net worth to you know, a million yeah. bucks and more? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like we'll go over a good roadmap, you know, kind of, I'm just starting out. I don't really have anything to, you know, mid levels and we'll give you the Taj Mahal at the end. But I also want to, you know, there's a misconception of most people thinking I don't need to protect it until there's, you know, the rainy day comes until I'm sued. And like, at the end of the day, it's too late. Once the lawsuit comes and then you start setting these things up after the fact, that's where fraudulent um, claims come into play, a fraudulent transfers. Um, so asset protection works if you're proactive, you know, before you need it. And um, the other misconception really is, well, I have a revocable living trust. Why do I need asset protection? That'll protect me. Um, a revocable living trust is just like a fancy will that helps you with death taxes and probate, avoiding probate. It's not going to protect you from creditors. Um, so you need an asset protection trust that works with your revocable living trust. Um, so just to clear up some of the misconceptions of people thinking they're already protected when they're not. Um, I see that a lot. And so the roadmap here is when you're driving down the road of asset protection, you really have a few stops. And the goal is the same at each stop. It's to get the assets out of your personal name. And then each stop just has different levels of strength to protect you from attacks based on your asset profile. Um, the main key concepts here, like one of them is equity and cash flow. Um, the first big concept here goes to protecting real estate is that you want to protect the equity and the cash flow, um, not the fair market value. You know, like when you're getting sued, no one cares about what your fair market value is. In lawsuits, we want to know what equity we can get out of it and how much cash flow is there. Um, and it just goes to the saying, gross value is vanity, net is sanity, and cash is king. Um, certain amount of debt can protect you. So if you're highly leveraged, 
um, there's not much equity for me to sue you for. So that debt could save you as an asset protection strategy. But if you have a lot of cash, you know, and equity out of that property, I'm going to be able to get my hands on it, especially if it's not in anything like an LLC um, or a management company or, or an asset protection trust, um, which then sort of goes into the next principle um, is especially for real estate investors is this big legal principle called legal versus practical authority. Um, and the reality is that a judge can, and they do whatever they want, you know, LLCs and LPs, they're governed by the states and statutes where they're created in. Um, what this means is that if you have a Nevada LLC, you know, and you hope that exclusive remedy for that is just going to be the charging order against that LLC. But a judge, even in California by statute, you know, isn't, even though they're not supposed to go beyond that charging order in theory, they do. And they do this because judges have a magic wand and power that they have called the court of equity. This means we can do whatever we want. We want to find a justifiable means to call to, uh, you know, remedy a wrong, even if it's against established cases, against established statutes um, and laws. And so this is what you're working against is um, the court's practical authority, what they actually can do, like seizing your property, placing a lien on it, foreclosing it on it, you know, ordering a sheriff's sale, clearing title. There's so many things that they can do in direct contradiction to the established states and case law. And so the solution to combat this is um, creating a strong asset protection system and so that the judges and the legal system can't be circumvented to take your property or your assets from you. And then the next thing that we go through is asset protection trust. These are the big guns. You know, once you start getting past that 500,000, you get to that million dollar range. Um, you start looking at different types of trusts that you can put your assets in. And there's two ways you can go. One's domestic and one is foreign. Um, the foreign one I prefer, especially if you're a high risk professional, like a doctor or a real estate developer and you're investing, or you're just a real estate investor and you have a bunch of assets um, and you need those, that cash flow to survive, paying your bills, retirement, your legacy. Um, and the reason I like the foreign option is because the Cook Islands has what's called statutory non-recognition of any other country or courts, jurisdictional court orders. What this means is that your U.S. judgment is going to be completely worthless in the Cook Islands. They're just going to say, <laughs> they're going to tell a U.S. creditor, even if you have a million dollar judgment against you, they're going to say, go pound sand. We don't care. There's, it's worthless here. You got to sue us here in the Cook Islands. Um, you know, you got to, can't bring your U.S. attorneys here. You got to fly in a judge from New Zealand. You got to front all the court costs. If you lose, you pay. And by the way, you got to prove your case by the murder standard beyond a reasonable doubt. And so there's a lot of loopholes that you have to jump through to be able to win and let alone get to the Cook Islands to sue you in time. And most people don't have the money, time or resources to do that. Um, so they're very, very strong and there's a reason why they're the gold standard, but they're also expensive. So then you have the domestic option in the US. Um, they're cheaper, they're more, you know, they're a little bit more cost efficient, but the problem with the purely domestic ones is only about 17 states allow them and have some sort of self-settled spendthrift legislation. And if you're not a resident of one of those states, like let's say you're a California resident using a Nevada Asset Protection Trust, there's now a case law that came out and said, hey, that's not gonna work for you because you're a California resident, not a resident of Nevada, so we're not gonna let you get the benefits of a, another state that you're not a resident of. 
And that's in this great case, Kilker versus Stillman, 2012. Um, so the next thing is like, okay, great. I can wing it and hope that my domestic asset protection trust holds up, or I can pay for a Taj Mahal foreign asset protection trust. Um, but isn't there a way that I can combine the two together? And that's called a bridge trust. So you take the best of both worlds, the flexibility of a domestic asset protection plan with the strength and power of the Cook Islands in the back pocket, if and when you need it. And the way that kind of works is you're classified domestically by staying in IRS compliance. And then if you're sued, like a lawsuit, a triggering event triggers a migration clause, which means we drop all the domestic IRS compliance and the trust is now only in purely a foreign asset protection trust until the lawsuit goes away and we reinstill the um, IRS compliance. And so if and when you need the strength of the foreign trust, it's there. Until you don't, you have the flexibility of the domestic component of it. Wow. So there was a, there was a lot in there, right? So yeah. the, the, the foreign and domestic trust and Cook Islands in particular, it's a, that's an interesting setup. And I'm wondering with this particular structure that you uh, just described, like how does that work? Like maybe more in detail is the wrong question, but you're saying triggers IRS compliance and, and those things like, what does oh, that yeah, I'll really break, mean? Yeah, I'll break that down. So for the, you know, people, CPAs or lawyer listeners or you who really want to geek out, you know, so the bridge trust is an irrevocable tax neutral grantor trust. And so why you want the trust to be irrevocable is that if you ever are challenged and in front of a judge and, you know, the judge says, hey, I see you have assets, you know, we think you have control and the judge tells you to bring them back so that they can be collected on. You don't have the power at that point to do it. And then they can't hold you in civil contempt and force you to do it because you don't have the power to do it at that point. What a grantor trust means is that you, the creator of the trust, retain some of the powers. And like all asset protection trusts, they're self-settled spendthrift trusts. And what this means is that they're self-settled, meaning by you for yourself as your own beneficiary. And then the win-win on the IRS reporting is that the bridge trust is actually a foreign asset protection trust, but it's considered domestic, um, not foreign. And this is because it's specifically drafted to meet two, a two-part test um, from the USC section 7701 called the court test and the control test. And it's just, you need to have a court state situs established as, to meet the court test. For example, like I'm designating at Nevada as uh, you know the jurisdictional state. The control test is naming you as a trustee. When you remove one of those components of USC 7701, you drop all the domestic compliance of the trust and now it's strictly and purely a foreign asset protection trust at that moment. Um, and why you care about this is for tax purposes. You know, you have none of the foreign IRS filings or asset disclosures of any kind while the trust is purely domestic and it's cheaper on cost and annual maintenance. But for protection purposes, you also now have the strength and power of the Cook Islands in your back pocket in case that, you know, really bad day ever came up. And how it all kind of works together is like this. The first layer is your base layer. This is your LLC that holds your real estate and your other assets that can hurt somebody or has a key or can go boom. The next layer is an asset management limited partnership, which acts as a holding company and it holds the bulk of your assets like cash and stocks and bonds or receivables. It owns those LLCs that own those real estate assets. Essentially anything that can hurt somebody gets put into that management company. 
Now LLC, like I said, is going to be held inside that asset management limited partnership. Um, and we use the asset management limited partnerships because they have a separation between the managing partner called the general partner and a minority partner that doesn't. Um, that's just the ownership portion of it. You, the client, will be the general partner of the asset management limited partnership. Uh, this gives you control of the assets, but not the ownership of it. The final layer is your outer layer. You know, the weather's getting really cold, weather's coming in, the snow's coming, you know, I need to really protect myself. That's the asset protection bridge trust, and it's gonna be the minority limited partner. And this is the non-controlling interest, but it's the ownership interest. That bridge trust owns that management company. Um, and you're just a beneficiary of that trust. This separates ownership from use and enjoyment. Then either, you know, two things happen, you die many, many years and many, many decades from now, and your assets get dispersed by your living trust, or there's a crisis, like a lawsuit, the bridge trust is triggered, the my, uh, migration clause provision is exercised, the assets cross the bridge to the power um, and sanctuary of the Cook Islands, and then you have the statutory non-recognition power until the lawsuit gets settled. Once the lawsuit gets settled, the assets um, don't really like transfer back, it's just re reinstill the domestic compliance, and it's back to being a domestic trust again. Okay, so that's, uh, I'll be honest, it's complicated. It's a little above my level, but, you know, I'm going to go back and re-listen to make sure I really understand. But you mentioned, you know, briefly the, the compliance in terms of paperwork. And, you know, my asset protection right now is not that complicated, but it's already kind of an administrative, there's already administrative burden in terms of yeah. filing everything and, it's not anywhere near as complicated as what you're describing. Now, granted, I'm not as, you know, my net worth's not as large as, you know, some of the folks that you're dealing with. Um, but still, the administrative burden sounds like it could be extreme. Or, or how are you dealing with that? With so the, structure? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually not as burdensome because it's simply just a domestic trust. So you're not really filing. All the IRS will ever see is that. So we'll go back. So all your LLCs, because you're saying it's burdensome as you own properties and put them into more LLCs and more LLCs. That's a lot of compliance and tax filings that you have to make. That's why you add a management company. You want those LLCs to flow through that management company. You know, K1s. You want those K1s to flow through the management company. One tax filing. It's very smooth and simple. And then the only other thing that you have is now a trust and all it is is a domestic trust. So it actually cleans up the system instead of having to file all these separate K1s like, oh my gosh, I have 10, 10 properties, two to four properties in each LLC. I have three to four LLCs. Sometimes I have clients with 15 LLCs because they just are, you know, like lots of lots of assets. You know, that's a lot, that's a big CPA nightmare <laughs> and mess. You know, like you're yeah. gonna, your CPA probably hates you. And or so lots, the way you clean a lot of hours, Bill. Oh, that, that's true, but it's just a big mess. <laughs> They're sitting here saying like, man, a lot of hours, but this is like an insane nightmare that I have to administrative mess, like you called it. The way you clean it up is with the management company and having the K1s flow through there and then having one bank account instead of having a million bank accounts with different LLCs, it simplifies your life. Okay, that makes sense. And I suppose, um, you know, I just wonder also about the keeping the cook islands happy you know what do you have to do to jump through their hoops or nothing know? because it's not it's not a foreign trust until you drop the domestic compliance it's purely a domestic trust 
So once you drop the domestic compliance and it's purely classified as a foreign trust, then you have to file the extra um, IRS tax filings and disclosures. Hopefully you never have to. Until then, you do, you know, once you do become a foreign asset protection trust, then you're gonna have to have those extra IRS disclosures and, and, um, and filings. Um, but generally that's not gonna be a full time because lawsuits get settled, especially once uh, a, a law firm realizes there's not gonna be anything collectible on this, they generally will go away or settle <laughs> for pennies on the dollar. And then once that settlement's agreed upon and signed and, and that lawsuit's gone away, it, it, it's uh, back to being domestically classified and then it's back to you don't have any more of those foreign IRS compliance um, that you have to deal with. So uh, how well tested or I guess tested is probably the best word I can come up with. Yeah, how no, well tested good. is this structure in terms of case law? Yeah, that's a great question because most asset protection structures aren't. You know, like there's a lot of LLC case law of all of them getting pierced. Mm -hmm. And so the great thing about foreign asset protection trust is there's over 40 years of case law because these came up in the 80s and they're still the gold standard. I mean, you literally have very famous cases like the Anderson case, the Grant case, the Slow case of people kind of condoning people to go and do what I'm going to say. It's just because I use when I teach this to other law, you know, like law groups um, and continuing legal education, I use very extreme cases to make a point. These were criminal activities, Ponzi schemes that were created, stiffing the IRS for $36 million and putting the money into, you know, the Cook Islands. The money was still safe. And that's the IRS, the SEC, the man coming after you, suing you there. Infinite money, infinite resources, and they couldn't get to it. That's how strong it is because of statutory non-recognition. And so if you're able to force a government to take pennies on the dollar when they're coming after your like 36 millions of back taxes, you know, or you created a criminal Ponzi scheme and they're coming after you for all that money and they can't get it. It's a strong system. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and recommend against the Ponzi schemes, just like you exactly. said, but for the record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the record, but it just took the teaching point of, you know, over 40 years of very, very strong case law to where, you know, super creditors, the government, you know, really can't get into it. And the Cook Islands even had to make an opinion ruling on the Anderson case and saying, we understand this was for criminal activity. We're, we are appalled that we have to make this ruling to keep the assets here, but we have to follow our, our laws here. And the reason that our constitution, our statutes were, were created, you're not getting a penny. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wild. Interesting. Well, uh, for those listening to the audio, we are doing a Facebook live stream. I live stream many of these interviews. We had a question come through from my friend, Jonathan Farber. He said, asks, where do you think most people go wrong with trusts or asset protection? What mistakes are most people making in these cases? That's a good question. I think most people, especially self-made entrepreneurs or real estate investors, are used to DIYing everything themselves. And so they're pinching pennies and not going to experts and thinking, well, I'm just going to go create my own LLC. Um, the devil's in the details, especially as a litigator, I care about what happens when it's challenged in court. You know, so it has to be done properly. Um, so go to the professionals. That's part of your team. Don't try to be a lawyer. Be good at what you do and then create your team to have your back when and if you need it. Um, the other one is just thinking that there's a silver bullet. There's no such thing as a silver bullet. You know, there's just different levels of protection 
And you need to understand the pros and cons of each and where your level of risk is and what you can, what, what your risk level and tolerance is. Um, but don't do it yourself and realize a revocable living trust isn't there to protect you. It's not designed for it, so it can't. Um, and then look at your pedestal on swing of where in the risk profile you are and set something up, but get it out of your personal name. Interesting. Okay, so people who set it up on their own, are they like how frequently do they get it right? I mean, it sounds like never. more often than not they get it wrong. Never. I'm, I've never seen a person who's not a lawyer, even lawyers that don't do this for <laughs> a living get it wrong. Yeah, you know, that's, that's the thing is, you know, I'm not going to go and self-diagnose myself. I'm not a doctor. I'm going to probably get it wrong. I can theoretically understand something, but, you know, the operation, the operating agreements, the funding analysis, because a lot of this comes into, you know, like I said, how do you manage these things on a daily basis even and the compliance of that to not to avoid fraudulent transfer arguments and to avoid funding issues and piercing the corporate veil issues. Um, so just, that's why you work with CPAs. That's why you work with lawyers who do this is to teach you how to do it properly and then you can run it on your own. But I would never say go create something on your own. Don't DIY it. Good to know. Good to know. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Brian, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I would just say like a, a cloud system. I updated my firm to just be completely on the cloud and it has revolutionized my business. Yeah, especially now with everybody working from home. I mean, if you if businesses that weren't ready for this had to make up the time, yeah. make up the ground. I did it three years ago and you know, did my my cloud, you know, what is it, CRM or whatever, and it just made my life function as more efficient, more practical. I can just send things out to my whole team. Everybody's happily, they can work from home or in the office, wherever they want. Everybody works longer hours um, because they're able to be, take everything mobile. When I go to court, I can literally take an entire case on my iPhone. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. On the other side of that, we had the best investment. On the other side of the coin, what is the worst investment you ever made? <laughs> yeah, so when I, I didn't really care about marketing and then branding uh, for a very long time because I was lucky enough to have a really good reputation as a good trial lawyer. And when I went out on my own, I just said, oh, my reputation will carry me through and I'll just have clients call in. But it was a very old dogmatic way of marketing in law firms. And I was taught that from other very, very successful law firms, large law firms. And I just realized this is just not a way to go about collecting, you know, like a clientele and a list. So then I, I realized like, what is going on? I'm more knowledgeable than most people and more experienced. Um, but there's an issue here of people calling in. And so I actually had to start investing in marketing and branding and getting myself on like an SC, what is it? SEO on Google. Mm -hmm. I didn't even have myself indexed on Google. And so like, <laughs> I did nothing. <laughs> nice. Nice. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Don't be afraid to ask for advice. 
you know, everyone's afraid to talk to somebody or getting wrong, wrong advice or, you know, afraid to just jump. I would just say, don't think you're going to find the answers to everything. All that you're not going to know everything. So don't think you have to just feel comfortable building up, you know, a network and ask questions. Successful people love educating and answering questions and not charging you for it. Those are the people you want to be friends with. That's, that's a fantastic answer. You know, that, that first question I ask, um, I had to put the qualifier on there other than in your education, because so many successful people that I talk to say that their best investment was their education. I'm like, all right, we get it. It's the best one. Now we got to go for technically the second best one. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even, I wouldn't even put my education as my best investment. Really? I would put grit. Yeah, no, I mean, an education is an education. People change professions how many times throughout their life or pivot? Like my whole life was about pivoting. And what you got to do is the best investment is an investment in yourself at the end of the day and just how much grit and how much, you know, junk can you just take and keep going through and failures and learning and keep going. That's the best investment. I love that. Brian, I appreciate you telling us about this strategy today. Uh, like I said, um, I, I go back and listen to every episode. I'm going to listen to this one a few times to really make sure I'm absorbing this asset protection structure and, and strategy. I really appreciate it. If folks want to get in touch with you and they want to learn more about this, where can they find you? Uh, they can jump on my website, www.btblegal.com, or just email me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at btblegal.com. I used to do paid consultations, but I don't do that anymore because I just feel most people are afraid to talk to a lawyer because they are afraid of the you know consultation fees, and then they want to talk to other lawyers. Um, I just would rather people have education and get a knowledge base and then take that and if you think you can find somebody better or a cheaper version of me by all means go do it but at least be comfortable enough to talk to somebody to get an opinion and so i would just rather you know put out the information and let people have a good full consultation and then go from there and my website has tons of educational videos um and brochures and pamphlets on there um like i said it's just about knowledge Perfect. I love that. Folks should definitely check out your website and get that information. We love good quality, free information here on this show. Appreciate you joining us today for this recording and for the live stream. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to join us for a future live recording, add me on Facebook. You'll get a notification when we go live and you can ask questions. We love the questions. Thank you for tuning in once again. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Appreciate you tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week, and we'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.